0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English.
1: And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication.
0: This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the worlds of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello everybody, welcome back. Science facts and fallacies, episode two fourteen. Kevin, it's so good to see you again. Last week was crazy, and
1: uh, I was here all by myself. I was a little lonely. How are you? I'm doing okay, but it's been a, it's been a real grind for me. We've been uh, doing a lot of things between work and work, and doing my wife's job. It's killing me. And um, <laughs> where we planned a, I wouldn't want to say a baby shower this weekend. We know that the that the the baby will be here. Sometime between now and May 16th. <laughs> I mean, was on May 16th at 8 p.m., they give her the drugs to make her have it. And so we're having a – we planned this a long time ago. We have a little get-together, first friends, family, and customers. Um, and and so we're having that. And then we had a new neighbor across so – busy, busy getting that ready. And then we have a new neighbor across the street, and I asked, why don't you guys come on over? My daughter's going to arrive soon, and we're going to have a little party for her. And he goes, "Oh, your daughter's arriving. Is she away at college?" <laughs> so yeah, joy of being an old parent. This is she said, "University of Vagina," <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh,
0: the old UVV, <laughs> yeah.
1: fighting cervix, the fighting fallopians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Um, so it seems like that would have been the better. But uh so he was kind of surprised that he goes, I didn't even know Natalia was pregnant because you know the wife is here walking around and, you know and she she keeps going, you know, and she looks like she just has a really bad thyroid condition or something. <laughs> so all the hot like goiter. Um abdominal goiter.
0: Yeah, so everything's
1: good. Just it's way too overbearing, and then work. I found myself on all these committees, and then semester end, and a few national efforts that I'm involved in. It's just been a little bit too crazy. Yeah. Uh, all good. All good. So that, that's exciting. Well, take
0: some time off, man. When your kid comes, for one thing, you're not going to get anything done, and you're not going to get any sleep. I know you don't get that much anyway right now, but um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just to stay <laughs> home for a few weeks. I'll, I'll I'll hold down the fort here. We'll get a guest host. Last week was fun. It was kind of weird talking into my camera for like 30 minutes by myself because yeah. my voice got all hoarse and I forgot what it's like to just talk <laughs> for like 40 minutes at a time. So it was uh, an interesting challenge. So in any case, I'm glad you're back. Glad the family's doing well. And uh, let's jump into our stories. We've got three here. All right. And the first one, of course, is is one that you wrote, Kevin. So this is called Kill the Messenger mRNA-based livestock vaccines are under attack by skeptics. Here's why their rejectionism is misplaced and dangerous. Next up, does conventional livestock farming use drugs at unnecessarily high levels, endangering human health, as activist groups claim? And finally, four multinational companies sell half of all seeds globally, says USDA report on agricultural consolidation. The big, big ag, Kevin. Oh, no. So that's going to be an interesting one. All right. But tell us about this story first. So apparently the uh, the COVID vaccines pissed everybody off. And now you can't give these to animals either. What's going on? Well,
1: this has been a really interesting story and evolving very quickly. And I have found myself being uh, maybe tagged as one of the experts in the subject because I've taken the time to read everything on it and uh, have been just deluged with interviews and phone calls, things like that. What's going on is that long before there was COVID-19, there's been a number of very dangerous animal viruses, highly contagious, um, move like uh, wildfire through domestic populations, and uh, have significant economic impacts for farmers. And those get passed on to consumers, of course, and uh, many animals get sick. So there really needs to be some sort of solution. Well, a number of companies took on this newly emerging area of mRNA livestock vaccines and coming up with mRNA alternatives to standard vaccination, which is always the you know protein subunit or attenuated or weakened virus, whatever, um, the standard way we made vaccines. So the RNA vaccine has actually probably been going in animals research since 2015, In domestic animals and there's been one that's been on the market for a while actually two Um, but uh, but they've been on the market and they've been being used and they're highly adjustable you can uh, address new variants you can address new problems very very agile technology and this is uh, from Merck and this is really cool stuff so um, other companies are working in the space there's a lot going on now enter in Uh, COVID 19 and an anti vaccination movement and an anti COVID movement who kind of coalesced with anti vaccines for COVID (laughs) and um, especially didn't like the mRNA. And, of course, something new you can always make up horror stories about. Well, you know, you've seen it online. Well, the nanoparticles go to your fallopian tubes and your uh, mRNA can be detected in your brain months after, you know, all this stuff. And uh, the same sort of uh, anger has now been f- heading towards animal vaccines when they realize that mRNA vaccines are now being used in animals. And uh, in mostly this is in swine right now. It's all in uh, commercial pigs and none in cattle. Yet um, the online environment is very upset about being used in cattle. All right. Well, that's that. You know that. Let's just stop there for a second because that's really the setup.
0: Okay. So I'm I'm sorry. I'm looking through your story and I'm looking at some of these social media posts, <laughs> and um, I'm I'm just con- I'm highly confused already. So <laughs> so it seems to me that <clears throat> the primary concern here, at least according to these people on Facebook and Instagram and so forth, is that. This is a backdoor way to vaccinate the population through our food supply. So, let, let's talk about that. They are they not they're not especially concerned about the health of the animals in this case. They see this more as Bill Gates and his uh, army of minions are, <laughs> are trying That's to right. send COVID COVID shots into into everybody through the food. But talk about that if if I That's have right. assessed that correctly.
1: <laughs> No, you got it right. So, and that's what's so cool about this article in Genetic Literacy Project um, is it's got a lot of the re, uh, social media clips in there that show, you know, how the response to this is happening. And that's what's so ridiculous. Uh, some of them say that, uh, well, they couldn't get it into my arms, so they're going to put it into my hamburger at McDonald's. And, you know, it, they somehow see it, it shows a complete um, disconnect between how biology works. They want to use mRNA, which mRNA is an extremely unstable molecule, extremely inherently unstable. You inject this into the animal, into a muscle. It makes an antigen that gives it uh, resistance against a given disease or disorder, a virus or pathogen. And, um, And then the RNA goes away and the protein goes away and the lipid nanoparticles are long gone. But somehow folks believe that if you eat the meat from an animal that's been injected with this stuff, that you're going to receive the vaccine, the mRNA hanging around somehow, um, that moved to an entire animal somehow, uh, even though it's you know very unstable and breaks down quickly. So this is uh, now a movement that says the mRNA vaccine is still alive and still around and hanging around the cow, and uh, they've never been injected into cows commercially. Um, and so the big problem with this is that now you've got legislators going, well, wait a minute, we can't have this. (laughs) And without calling FOLTA, they go ahead and start House Bill 1169 in uh, Missouri that says they're going to label any, they want to label meat products that have received, where the cow had received an mRNA vaccine as made with gene therapy. So mRNA vaccines are not gene therapy. They do not make changes to DNA. They do not affect anything like that. Yet they want to label it that way in Missouri um, if the animal received the mRNA vaccine. So, I mean, this has just got, from the public side, that's crazy, to the politicians getting involved, to the fact that this is great technology that can really help farmers. I mean, this is just an amazing story to me. It just blows me away. Yeah, so this is strange.
0: So I definitely want to talk about the, the, the benefits for animal welfare and then the economic benefits to agriculture. These are important to talk about. But just fill in the, the molecular biology for me, Kevin. So <laughs> messenger RNA isn't a, isn't a set thing. It's not like, oh, there's one mRNA molecule, and it, it's all the same, <laughs> right? right? RNA is the intermediary between DNA and, and protein, right? And uh, I always get transcription and translation mixed up, but mRNA is there in the middle. <laughs> so, but it, but it's it's associated with specific genes, right? It's not like, oh, there's one mRNA vaccine for COVID and for, <laughs> you know, for pers and for all this other stuff. So, so unpack that for me, because that's that's all tangled up, I think, for a
1: lot of people. Yeah, it's actually pretty cool. So the way that I think about it is, DNA is the hard drive of the cell. It, it is to the cell what your hard drive is to the computer. It's the master place of all the information, the blueprint that makes you you. It's tucked away in the nucleus, put away and organized and stored away. And different files are only available. Different information is only accessed at different times. Right. It's it, it's depends on what program you run, you know, it, and that's DNA, RNA is a transient form of the information in DNA, so specific parts, specific programs run. Um, Different genes are transcribed, as you said, into this temporary form of information called RNA. And the RNA information matches the DNA information to some degree, but it it makes essentially a copy of the DNA that in uh, eukaryotic organisms uh, leaves the nucleus And then goes out into the cell out in the so the dna is tucked away in the nucleus in the hard drive your usb drive of rna it's temporary storage of a little bit of information that's on the hard drive goes out into the nucleus or out into the cytosol from the nucleus it's a temporary form of information and while that rna is moving out to the to the cytoplasm the outside of the cell it's um well the the inside of the cell but not the nucleus It is being bombarded by RNAs, which are molecules that degrade it, by um, all kinds of mechanisms and proteins that are binding it. All kinds of things are happening to that RNA. The RNA gets to the ribosome, which is where translation occurs, and translation is where that information that's now in the RNA molecule is translated into a protein, where uh, don't don't get them started on tRNA. (laughs) So tRNA... (laughs) <laughs> I know, there's a bunch of them. Um, the little tRNA comes down with the pro the amino acid, they, and in a process called translation, they put them together based upon the information in the RNA. So amino acids get assembled in the right order to make a protein peptide. and ends up getting folded into the protein that are the functional, uh, catalytic, and structural elements of the cell. So that's the central dogma of molecular biology. When we're giving an mRNA vaccine, we're using the ribosomes of the body and injecting an mRNA into the, into the cell or into the arm that gets into the cytoplasm, and that RNA now is uh, like throwing a USB drive, you know, it's, it's it's just temporary storage that now gets found by the ribosome and makes the protein. That information is never on the hard drive, never in the nucleus, never on the DNA, it's only on RNA. So it's a, an RNA is is horribly unstable. I've worked with RNA my entire career and you have to keep it on ice. You got to uh, store it at minus ADC. You have to have the solutions impeccably buffered with the right salt and pH or else the, the RNA is self-catalytic. There are um, there are so many things, not self-catalytic, it, it's self uh, hydrolyzes. There's so many things that happen with RNA. Um, it's just, it's a very fragile molecule. That's why it's a perfect way to deliver a, Information to produce an antigen to induce an immune response. I hope that helps. No,
0: that's great. That's really helpful. And this is the sort of, um, you know, foundational stuff that most people are are ignorant of. And that's why I specifically asked that because, you know, even I have a limited understanding. Now I'm not going to go run around on Facebook and go, oh, Bill Gates. (laughs) But that was that was great. I want to add one thing. This is a comment from uh, Ricky Lewis. She's a geneticist and she's a contributor to GLP. And she left this comment publicly on your article. So I feel, I feel entitled to read this. She says, I'm mRNA free has got to be the dumbest statement I've ever read in my many years as a science writer and geneticist. Seventh graders know that mRNA, or excuse me, seventh graders know what mRNA is without this nucleic acid, an organism or a virus could not exist because it could not transcribe and translate its genes into proteins. Ignorance abounds stunningly stupid. (laughs) So I think, your, your explanation was in-depth and helpful, and I think she sort of encapsulated the, the basic essence of the point, <laughs> which is yeah. it's a transient molecule. It's not going to hang around. You know, they haven't tried to – I don't think they have. They haven't tried to sneak a COVID vaccine into <laughs> – I don't even – like, I can't even entertain it. Seriously, it's just such a silly idea. Um, okay, so really quick, Kevin, before we move on to our next story, talk about uh, – you did a little bit, but talk about the importance of this to, to animals because – most people don't know when when agricultural animals get sick, you can sometimes you can treat them with antibiotics, but in many cases you just have to kill them so they don't infect the rest of the herd. And that's expensive. That that costs the farmers money, but it also costs people like me money at the grocery store because it costs more to produce the food. So talk briefly about that if you would.
1: Yeah, and sometimes when you get a disease like avian influenza, you have to destroy the entire herd. Yeah, and it spreads so quickly. So there are remedies for many of these diseases that are either genetic engineering or, um, in this case, mRNA vaccines. And animal health is tantamount. And when you look at you know any farmer, if you, if the animal's not well, you're not making money with it, and you also have a sick animal, which people we don't want sick animals. You know we have a place in our heart for them. Right. Um, the the disease spectrums that's covered, things that they haven't been able to address in other ways. So uh, porcine reproductive and uh, respiratory uh, virus, PERS, as you mentioned, um, has a mRNA vaccine, hoof and mouth uh, disease, rabies, um, diseases that are transmitted from animal to human um, are uh, have vaccines against them. Um, so avian influenza, there's so many of them in development, it's crazy. And to suggest that this is some some sort of problem is, is is totally unacceptable. This is worse than anti-GMO because this is this is even crazier, and uh, you know it it really stands to harm farmers, and harm animals, and harm consumer choice. So for me, um, people got to get on board with this one really quick and start pushing back because. There are bills in 3 states right now that seek to limit or label or whatever this technology. So keep keep abreast of this particular story.
0: Yeah, do that. I haven't read HB 1169 yet, but I am curious. Do they cite the fact that the FDA regulates
1: uh, gene edited animals as veterinary drugs? Uh, no, they don't even mention that. Because that's because really that's that's way out there. What they're saying is the meat that comes from uh, a injected animal is right. gene therapy,
0: which is not true. No, no, it's it's not. But but I could see I don't, maybe that's a little I, too sophisticated for these folks.
1: It's, no, no, you're, right, you're exactly right. It, yeah. There's no way it could be gene therapy because if it was gene therapy, it would be impossible to deregulate. Right. No, almost. Impossible.
0: Right. But in other words, I think maybe they could point to that and say, look, the FDA calls these veterinary drugs. So maybe we're not totally out in left anyways anyways this is just my brain at work. okay all right so uh, conventional livestock related story um, are, are we just stuffing our animals full of drugs Kevin? Well it's this goes back to that idea
1: of uh, are you um, uh, you hear this story all the time that uh, animal agriculture is just pumping animals full of drugs just like when they say farmers are dousing their fe- chemi- their fields and chemicals or whatever. And really what you got to remember is that all of these things cost money and no one's going to give drugs unnecessarily. Uh, in the old days, you could use subtherapeutic levels of certain antibiotics and get a bump and, uh, and hang out weight of a pea, uh, dress out weight of a pig at the end or whatever. But it isn't, that doesn't work so much anymore because genetics are so good. They grow so fast. It doesn't matter what if you give them a little extra bump. Um, they're already growing as fast as they can, and so this came from Harriet. The story is by Harriet Bartlett. Um, it was written about an article that was in Scientific Reports, and it's a peer-reviewed study that says that um, do, do different types of animal agriculture have uh, reflect in terms of the yield, and how does all of this relate to land use and um, antibiotic use, and are the more intensive antibiotic uses um, using more land, and, and is that really resulting in more production? And they looked at pork mostly because uh, pork is something, using something like 8.5% of arable land in the world for domestic, um, domestic pork. And um, the idea here was that they looked at um, antimicrobial use, antibiotic use. Uh, they, they looked at um, land use, other different facets, and they looked in different croppings or different cropping systems, different animal husbandry systems. So, uh, and these are a little bit of cryptic um, terminology to those of us in, in the U.S., but they have uh, what they call red tractor. They have a couple other ones that, uh, or some that are, are organic. And these different me- these different standards for animal husbandry each have their own boundaries with respect to antibiotic use and land use. And basically what they found in the article was uh, it really there wasn't any relationship that they could see between uh, the better producers, the higher producers, the ones that use land more efficiently and uh, more intensive antibiotic use. It just wasn't true. And what you found was that it seemed to be a smattering that across different disciplines, different types of farming, there were high points and low points and different people used it in different ways. So their, their punchline was there really wasn't any hard evidence to indicate that more intensive animal agriculture uses more antimicrobials.
0: So in other words, the big scandal, the big scare is more or less non-existent. <laughs> so here's the, here's the summary from, uh, from the authors. She writes, the results of our study found only weak evidence to support this claim, and importantly, we found several farms which combined high yields and low antibiotic use. Such production systems may provide a guide to meeting a predicted doubling of demand for meat protein by 2050 in the most sustainable way." So that's so interesting, right? Because the argument have, has been for years from the Soil Association and Friends of the Earth and Earth Worshippers, Anonymous, whatever, that you know, in order to supply this meat that you all can't stop eating, they're just stuffing antibiotics into pigs and the cows <laughs> <laughs> that's not happening. So, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm sure you have more thoughtful things to say, Kevin, but I, as far as I'm concerned,
1: it's not really what it is. Yeah. It, it's, it's just a ridiculous claim. I mean, I, I always thought it was because I know people who are animal producers and the last thing you want to do is have to treat animals that are un- unnecessarily. Right. Yeah, um, you, you use it as prescribed when it's prescribed, when it's necessary. Um, it's a pain to have to vaccinate animals. It's uh costs a lot of money. You got to have people to do it. Yeah. Um, my face, we do it. I do it and it sucks. Um, but we do it for different reasons. You know, a uh, day old chicks get vaccinated against a number of diseases, but there are some, but, um, there, the, there are, uh, I almost fell back in MRNA vaccines, <laughs> uh, but it's, <laughs> It's uh, it's necessary to treat a sick animal, and that goes without without saying. Um, but that goes back to husbandry practices much more than it does anything else. People who have good uh, standard operating procedures on the farm don't get sick animals in the first place. So that's uh, that's really the big deal.
0: Yeah, yeah. A couple of things that just occurred to me, and um, I think it's important people know these these things because. I, you don't have an opinion on something if you don't know about it. <laughs> so, so all of these drugs are very tightly regulated by the FDA, as Kevin just alluded to. A veterinarian has to prescribe them, and then I don't know who has to administer them. Kevin, maybe you know. It sounds like someone with your background is allowed to administer them, but yeah. you can't. Yeah. You can't just go down to Walgreens and be like, "Hey, give me that antibiotic that's also for human use. I need to make my pigs fatter." <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. And then there's there's big food. Producers like Tyson and some of these other companies and and the companies they serve like um, I don't know what like burger. I don't know like these big fast food places They're all very sensitive to this antibiotic issue because they know people are concerned about it So in other words you have the federal regulators Then you have the biggest industry players that are all paying very careful attention to this So in other words, there's just a giant disconnect between what's actually happening and what the activist groups are whining about. So, yeah, you know, it's another, it's another day, I guess. (laughs) Anyways. um, Yeah. All right. There's no crisis. That's all I got to say, Kevin. So let's talk about uh, multinational companies.
1: Man, it's just a day for bad nonsense myths, huh? (laughs) Yeah, this is, uh, this one's an important one because the reality (laughs) is we've seen insane uh, consolidation in this area. Um, back when in the 1980s and 90s, I used to ride a bicycle and I'd ride out in rural areas out in Illinois. And uh, when you rode out by, you know, DeKalb to uh, Cane Land, or you know, down in the Mendota and these areas, I used to ride all these long country roads. You would go by all the different signs for for farms. You go by, you know, the different corn that was being trialed, and there were thousands or hundreds of names. And it was really fun to see them. I kind of Grooved on them a little bit. I thought they're pretty cool. So I always was looking at the, the different breeds of corn, different varieties that were being trialed in the different companies that made them. But what you saw from that time to now was intensive consolidation that these different companies had excellent hybrids and uh, excellent trait development, and they would get bought up by the big companies. So you get bought up by Pioneer, you get bought up by DuPont, get bought up by. Dow, by BASF, by Monsanto, by Bayer, whatever. And you get bought up by all these, um, the smaller companies got sucked into the big companies along with all of their genetics and germplasm. And why this is so important is because we talk about, you know, genetic engineering, GMOs all the time. But it's the foundational plant that really matters, right? Because the foundational plant has all of the traits for yield and for uh, drought tolerance and for everything else. The genetic engineering traits are just resistance to herbicides, resistance to insects, maybe drought in some cases, but in general, the main traits are insect and herbicide resistance. So the foundational corn or whatever, foundational soybeans, foundational genetics have to be superior. And all these companies spent tons of time getting them, making that happen. So the article mentions that this report, which was commissioned by the Biden administration says that, um, uh, that there has been this massive consolidation where I think they said Monsanto bought, was it 600 or 60? I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but a huge number of small companies from the 1990s, 600, I think. And the idea was they bought all of this material and then the big companies get very good at, so now it's boiled down to, from the big hundred to the big 12, to the big six, to the big four. So there's four major companies right now, right? You got your Bayer Corteva, which is Dow DuPont, uh, BASF, and um, the other one, uh, Syngenta Chem China. And, th- and they sell 50% of the world's seed. And so the concern is, okay, you've got four companies which have all the IP, they have all the seeds. This looks like a problem from an antitrust uh, you know, monopoly standpoint. And that's a little bit troubling in a way because now you've got uh, politicians commissioning USDA studies to see how this might be a problem. And they concluded that it is problematic because smaller companies can't get the genetics out or can't get, have access to the genetics because of the way they structure patents and things around us patented seeds. So let me stop there for a second and hear your thoughts, but I've got a few more really important thoughts on this. I, it's it's a troubling article in a lot of ways. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, a couple of things to add. And again, Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not a not an expert on this or, real frankly, anything we talked about. But um, I think that there's a tendency to freak out about the size of big companies or big industries. And sometimes that's a problem, as you said. But here's – this is from uh, 2018. This is a study done by the uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And they what they found – because the big concern is, is, or at least one of the big concerns, is that you have this consolidation in the seed – industry and then prices rise because these companies control everything so they can charge whatever they want farmers are out there whim and consumers are even you know more helpless but in the study they found that there's no evidence of higher seed prices in markets with higher levels of market concentration which is interesting i'm not i'm not quite sure why that would be you would think based on everything you hear that this is a real problem but that doesn't seem to be the case or at least that wasn't a few years ago so that's something I'd like your thoughts on. Um, and then the other thing is that if if people are concerned about market domination like this, then you need to um, reform the regulatory system. You need to make it less expensive and less onerous to get a new seed to market. And this is one of the reasons, I we've talked about this too, this is one of the reasons um, CRISPR and these other gene editing techniques are so important is because it's easier to use, it's not as costly, you can do things much faster. So this is going to open up the market in that there'll be more competitors to come up against Bayer and these other big companies. Um, so I'll stop there. Those are just two things that I've I've observed on, on numerous occasions and, and lots of people have. But it seems that perhaps the problem is overblown in some circumstances. And also, if you want to address it, you don't need the USDA to come. You don't need a giant monopoly force like the government to come in that's even more powerful than these companies are you need to fix the regulations and open it up to more competition if you're truly concerned about that. But I'll stop. Go go ahead.
1: Now, you're right on, though. Um, You you can keep going, Um, especially your second point. The the way to do this isn't going to be to take these big companies and break them up into smaller baby bells, right? Um, What you need to do is allow the new technology to come aboard with less regulation. You need to allow the university to compete. You need to have the government compete. You got to have small companies and and smaller um, companies. And I I think you are seeing that happening. Um, There's lots of small companies that are doing extremely well in because of gene editing and the lower regulatory barrier. And that democratization of the system is fantastic. In a lot of ways, it's similar to what happened with the phone industry, that you had uh, a breakup of the consolidation that was happening and had all these tiny companies that were there. They all ended up being um, subsumed or blown over for new technology anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, when when cell phones came around and all the landline companies were sitting there, you know, looking at their uh, phone plugged into the wall... The small, there was no Verizon or T-Mobile. I mean, right. this AT&T, sure, but um, it, these were the new technology, if you allow it to go and if you allow it to do what it does, will take care of this problem. The problem that is created right now is an onerous regulatory environment that's been created by the companies that they're critical of. Yeah. The big yeah. companies benefit from making the regulatory system impossible and onerous because they've been through it and they, in, basically they invented it. Yeah. And for them it's a breeze and it keeps out everybody else. They're the only ones who can play in that space. So open it up and that's where the new technologies are, 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 uh, are excellent and, and can really allow us to do it. That's a fascinating point actually.
0: And you see it in a lot of industries where, you have the critics of the industry and the biggest players in that industry that are aligned on a topic like this, you know? So another, another classic example is tobacco, right? It's a lot of the biggest tobacco companies are thrilled with, with uh, regulations on their industry because they have the lawyers and they have the money to jump all those hurdles and there's no competitors that can enter the market. And it's the same thing here, right? Right. I think this is funny too because we get called Monsanto shills all the time, <laughs> but it, it's it's very well known that these these big firms they're all too happy to have to you know to submit their products through this these review processes for all these federal agencies because nobody else can do it. And one other thing before I before I stop talking again, I know in the EU that there are a lot of small and mid sized biotech companies and even universities that have been chomping at the bit to get gene editing deregulated because they've got products ready to go. They've they've done the R&D, they just can't do anything with it. So it just stays locked up in the laboratory. So all that to say, change the law and then, you know, it's not the problem's not going to solve itself. That's the wrong way to put it, but there is a very viable solution on the shelf. And in large part, it's because of our, our friends like uh, Vandana Shiva and Kerry Gillum and Gary Reskin and, you know, all these people who supposedly hate Big Ag, who are lobbying to keep all of these rules in place that keep the market locked up.
1: It's, it's hilarious. Yeah, they enable their most hated companies to survive and do well. Yeah. And they keep out the small companies and the, the EU and... Yeah, it, it's really a, it's it's steeped in irony, and it's really unfortunate because we really do need um, more companies on in the space. We need to make this a better uh, uh, technology to be able to reach the people it's intended to serve, and has to be more agile. And when I see, um, you know, the current administration starting to poke around with USDA surveys on how, how bad is this climate and this thing. I start to imagine ways in which new regulations are going to come forth. Luckily, I think the way with the makeup of Congress might not right now means we may not have that happen, but down the road, I can very much imagine that this could become a major issue and uh, we may see the big seed companies broken in the pieces and uh, become less effective at what they do. So we shall see. Yeah,
0: that's another great point I think we should add just before we wrap up here is that these companies, for all of their faults and they have a lot of them, they're very good at what they do. You know, it's like like coming up with a product like glyphosate <laughs> or some of these seed genetics. These are huge innovations in agriculture and that's why they're so important, but you need talented scientists, you need good uh, you know, business people, you need you need talent that can do these things. So it's not an accident that some of these companies got to where they are. You know, yes, there is the problem of oligopoly and yes, there are regulatory issues, but you do have like, there are people at Bayer that are really good at what they do. And that's why the company got got to where it was over the last you know century or however long it's been. But um, what, uh, one thing I'll say, GLP has a great frequently asked questions article. It's called, does big ag dominate crop research and the global seed supply controlling the world food market? It's just, it's on their website. Just just look it up. It's great. It's, this is where I was pulling all the data from uh, that I was citing. So that'll give you good background, but but yeah, good good stuff. Thank you as always, Kevin, for giving uh, giving everyone your agricultural expertise on these different topics.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. This is a lot of fun. I always appreciate this this time to be able to get together and discuss these things because I think we're we're at I think that's really what ties together these three stories. We have a public that's been fooled and legislators and regulators who are ready to legislate and regulate uh, from the position of being fooled, and nothing good can come of that. And I think it's important that these kinds of communications efforts uh, expand and, and push on because we, we have to reach people. Mm-hmm. It's going to end up hurting everybody in the long run, and we'll be sitting here saying, how did this happen? Just like what happened with genetic engineering and crops long ago, so... Yeah. Good thing. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, in ten
0: years, if you're hungry, come back and listen to these episodes. We told you so. <laughs> okay. Well, on that happy note. Hey, no,
1: that's go. a great point. I mean, here's <laughs> um, uh, um, next week is the ten year anniversary of the stunning corn comparison. I don't know if you remember this thing. No, I, not by that oh, time. Okay, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I got to make an article somewhere for this. It was, uh, it was, but basically it was when uh, moms across America made up data and <laughs> put it out there. And it was, it was amazingly awful. It was, it was data that were made up that were implausible. Like you couldn't have <laughs> those data. It was like not even close. The corn was full of glyphosate, but had zero carbon. <laughs> Which, of course, glyphosate is made up of carbon. Uh, as a backbone. But anyway, long story short, um, it's, we do need to it, it, come back and look at this in 10 years. Put a time capsule on episode 241 or whatever it is. 214. Yeah. 214. Come, come
0: back and look at it. And uh, that's great. All right. Well, we're done for the week. Follow us right. on Twitter at Kevin Fulta, at J English. If you want to ask questions or call us stupid or, or talk about the show, we'd love to, to, love to interact with you. Uh, genetic literacy is just at genetic literacy on Twitter. As we always say, they put this on for us, so we're very grateful. And with that, we will see you next time, Four, two, one, five. 2,